Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Hello, and welcome to another episode of MI Cynic. Today, I'm going to be introducing Miss Rushali Saha. Rushali uh, has studied at Jadavpur University, where she got an MA in International Relations. She's currently a researcher for the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers, as well as a research associate at the Center for Air Power Studies. Rushala's research revolves around the geopolitics of Indian Pacific, and her research has been published widely. Today, we'll be digging deeper at what exactly India wants in the Indo-Pacific, what it hopes to achieve with its navy, and what sacrifices it is ready to accept. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce now Ms. Rushali Saha to the program, and just ask her to briefly explain to us a little bit uh, the last papers that she's published and how it fits into this theme. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so uh, to dive right into the topic, uh, as far as my publications are concerned, I'd like to like uh, my basic area of research and interest is studying the geopolitics of Indo-Pacific and how India's foreign policy situates itself within uh, this framework. So um, uh, recently, I did uh, write a book chapter where, uh, which is titled "Quad Rhetoric Versus Re Reality," where I basically explore like what is something which is so, which is also like it's not new, but it has garnered attention in recent times. And there are so many narratives which are coming out about quad. So, what really is quad? How does India see quad? Is something I discuss in that paper. Uh, I also recently co-authored uh, a paper with Marco, who is a researcher as well, and he studies uh, space. Uh, and he looked at China's space program, and I looked at India's space program. We got to talking, and we were discussing sort of whether we see a competitive or a cooperative angle to that. So we explored how India's uh, space program developed, how, how China's space program developed, and whether they've collaborated, and what are the future trajectories. Uh, of their relationship, especially in the space arena. So yeah, these are uh, two of my most recent publications. I'd love to talk more, of course, with you uh, about what I explored in them. One of the questions that I had when I was reading through some of your work uh, was related to some of the news that have been coming out lately. Uh, the U.S. and its allies' activity of in the Pacific, not just the not just the Indo-Pacific, but in the Pacific generally, has intensified uh, lately. Um, some of that activity has been based around uh, responding to Chinese activities in the region, and we see what you might call a, a, a sea cold war taking place, uh, by which two Big powers, China and the United States, are uh, doing naval activities to impress each other or scare each other or uh, whatever it is. But it, specifically relating to the Indian Ocean, there were three high-profile joint exercises which were done last year. These happen in July, November and March of, of this year uh, between the United States and India. The latest one was the Pass X exercise. Uh, this was representing a major crucial area of allegiance with between India and the United States. So these joint exercises are becoming they're larger, they're becoming longer, they're becoming more frequent. And what I'd like to ask you is whether these exercises are, are they a response to a perceived threat from what Beijing uh, is doing in the Pacific or 
is it more pro is it more proactive is it showing force is it highlighting strength and solidarity and i guess that at the root of this question is who is bullying whom in the pacific who is carrying around the big stick right uh, well uh, to ask your question okay the first thing i'd like to point out is that india and us as far as maritime relations are concerned do have a fairly long history and by long, of course, I mean the post-Cold War period, because pre-Cold War period, there was a historic baggage of uh, the you know, bipolar competition. So post-Cold War period, uh, they do have a quite a long, rich history. So the uh, earliest uh, cooperation uh, between the two countries actually started through an Indo-US Naval Steering Committee, which was in 1991. Uh, after which, uh, this following year itself, we had the Malabar exercise, of course, which is now very well-known, most high-profile exercise out there between the two countries. And this exercise has continued every year without a halt since 2002. And since 2015, it's also included Japan. And of course, the exercise has expanded its scope uh, it's, uh, in terms of, and even in terms of complexities. Now it has, you know, anti-submarine warfare tactics, then you have sea control missions. All of these are new additions, which are definitely testament to the growing relationship between India and US. However, uh, when it comes to your question about who's bullying whom, uh, I would argue that there is more to this relationship than just targeting one country. In fact, the PASEX exercise, which you just referred to, these exercises are fundamentally, they, they take place whenever it's convenient, uh, unlike the pre-planned uh, sort of the maritime exercises. These PASEX exercises take place whenever an opportunity arrives. Right, and in in recent, in just very recently, uh, in 2021 itself, India conducted PASEX exercises with Indonesian Navy, with the French Navy, with the Japanese navies. So, naval relations in itself is a very prominent aspect of the larger U.S.-India defense relationship, and I would argue that it is the best performing aspect of bilateral relationship. Does Beijing figure in this? Um, I would say yes and no. So firstly, yes, because, of course, it is a signal that these two democratic countries who are committed to a rules-based order are coming together. So these exercises are, at the core of it, they sort of aim to increase interoperability, maximize training, right? And uh, if you notice, uh, in India's sort of maritime heritage, if I may say so, interoperability has been the one thing India has been a little wary of. In fact, we were very reluctant to use this term for the longest time. The fact that today we are so open about it, the fact that we are proud that our seasoned forces, who are specially adept in handling the terror-induced situations, offer a lot in training the U.S. forces, especially in anti-piracy operations, is a matter of pride for us, right? And it is giving both sides to learn from each other's expertise. So the U.S. Navy's possession of uh, military technology is, of course, a huge advantage for India. So I think these are equally important factors. So I wouldn't say China is the only factor here, but like I was mentioning previously, the reason why I do say partially yes is because Chinese aggression is something which is, you know, is seen as a threat to the rules-based order in the region as a whole. So the two democratic countries, uh, which have clearly sort of indicated that they desire to uphold this rules-based order, so these exercises are a way of letting the world know that yes, India has arrived, yes, US has arrived, these two countries will work together. But are there problems in this problems or hiccups in this relationship? Of course there are. 
and these are uh, you know prominent aspects no relationship is so black and white of course you must be knowing this as well as well as our listeners so um chinese aggressiveness has definitely pushed the two uh, india and us together but i wouldn't say that this maritime relationship which has such a rich history is directed just towards this one country that would be a cross misunderstanding of india's own very nuanced and complex vision of the indo pacific region as a whole and that uh, that certainly makes sense uh, to me now i want to step away for a second and we'll, we'll get into the specifics of the of how china fits into this equation in just a second but for now i want to focus more on what the us and indian relationship is and one thing that i've been wondering is whether quad already is uh, an indo-pacific nato and whether it's uh, a formality that separates the two H- how do you how do you see it uh, right so i think by mentioning indo-pacific nato you've already brought china into this narrative because the term's origin actually comes from chinese foreign minister wang yi who compared it to an indo-pacific nato and he was the same person who previously compared it to seafoam which would dissipate quickly uh, of course uh, there was some controversy generated i can't quite remember exactly who it was but a very prominent us uh, officer had basically used this term very loosely in an interview and it created outrage so how i see it i should be very clear i do not see quad as an indo-pacific nato apart from the very obvious difference that we don't have something corresponding to the article 5 of nato which calls for the collective responsibility and collective defense we of course don't have that but if you just look at the name quad which is quadrilateral security dialogue the fact that it's a dialogue the fact that it's a grouping it's an ad hoc grouping i think it says a lot about what the group the what quad is as a whole what its objective is let me also take you and the viewers to the origins of the grouping okay So it actually originated with the Tsunami Core Group of 2005, right? So it was this ad hoc group of countries of US, Japan, India, Australia coming together to respond to the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake, earthquake and tsunami. And it was because of the successful coordination between these countries that they realized that this is an area where the countries can come together and cooperate and help the other countries. Let me also draw your attention to another thing, which is the vertical and horizontal expansion. of this grouping so to say uh the narratives of quad plus which are emerging i think they are testament to how not only these four countries but regional countries as well as extra regional countries such as the eu at large are recognizing the importance of this grouping it has of course uh, come in response partially to chinese aggressiveness because no country alone today can face china alone its actions in the south china sea uh its uh, belligerence belligerent actions towards taiwan towards vietnam its blatant disregard for the unclaws uh, verdict these are just some examples of course so there is an understanding among these countries that together they have to work if they want to uphold the rules based order but that does not automatically make this a nato because if you look at the areas of cooperation Humanitarian assistance in disaster management is one very core area. We are also exploring infrastructure developments. So, uh, in India, I can tell you that there are a lot of analysts, a lot of com- commentators, a lot of scholars who have come out and argued that Quad needs an economic dimension now. Right? This is not to undermine the security aspects of it or the security dimensions of Quad, 
But from the Indian perspective, Indo-Pacific is very, uh, sorry, Quad is very well situated within its larger Indo-Pacific vision, which in itself is premised on inclusivity and ASEAN centrality. India's notion is not against one country. And we, if, you, if we look at the statements made by uh, India's foreign minister, S.J. Shankar, this is something which comes out very, very clearly. We've kept reiterating that we do not believe in cliques. We do not believe in targeting any third country. We want an inclusive order. We want ASEAN centrality. But we are not going to do that at the expense of compromising a free and open order. Because that is something which we strongly believe in. That there should be a free and open order that all nations are able to sort of, you know, uh, get the benefits of, right? So to understand what, I really think we need to first define what it is not. Okay, so I don't think it's a formal security alliance. Neither is it something which is seeking to sort of replace the U.S. hub and spokes alliance structure, which is there in the region. And most importantly, it is not looking to replace the existing regional organization. So if you look at the statements which have come out from the countries, all of them have the common theme of ASEAN centrality. Of course, uh, when I say this, I, have, I, do, I do acknowledge that there are some subtle differences. Uh, amongst the four countries. And, and it was not until very recently that even a joint statement came out from the Quad members. Um, having said that, ASEAN centrality, I do believe, has been a common theme and it's something which all four countries agree upon. Of course, there are rhetoric statements which are projecting Quad as this exclusive military alliance. But we have to look at the political motivations behind those, behind those statements, which are the countries which are projecting them. At the heart of it, Indo-Pacific in itself is a sort of a mental map, if I may say so, which has emerged to satisfy each country's own national self-interest. Even for India, the reason why it has embraced Indo-Pacific, the reason why it has embraced Quad is because it expands its own strategic autonomy and will help it gain its own national interest. Similarly, I also believe that this narrative of Quad being an Indo-Pacific NATO is politically motivated by certain countries, to help them achieve their specific interests in the region. More specifically, countries which do not want Indo-Pacific to replace Asia-Pacific uh, narrative, which has been there in place. We've spoken quite a bit about China and where that fits into the equation. But let's talk, let's turn a bit for a second to Russia. Um, now, you may be aware that Russia and has lately been in the news because um, it fired warning shots at the HMS uh, Defender, which is a Royal Navy ship. And this has caused a sort of a diplomatic uh, military dispute between Britain and Russia. Not that there weren't already plenty of those, but I guess this is the, the latest one because the Royal Navy was doing um, some joint exercises uh, off the coast of um, Crimea in this case. Uh, Britain was defending its what it views as its right to international waters and uh, Russia responded as a way of saying this is our waters. And uh, I suppose at, at the heart of that is uh, where what the status of Crimea is. Is it annexed? Is it not? But this is just one in, in a series of provocations by the, the Russian Navy. And I wanted to see if there's a similar story with India. Does the Russian Navy provoke uh, the US-Indo-Alliance? And do these tensions ever come to the fore? So uh, I'm really glad you brought Russia up because... Uh, Russia's uh, vision of the Indo-Pacific and its activities in the Indo-Pacific is something which has honestly fascinated me more than anything else. 
because this is a country which has oscillated between, um, let me put it as like sort of a cautious concern and outright rejection of this Indo-Pacific concept. Um, so its official posture, of course, is that uh, it says that it's artificial in nature and it specifically has a problem against Quad saying that it is uh, directed towards containing China, right? And they see it as an attempt by the West to contain China. This, of course, has to do with the more troubled relation between uh, United States and Russia. So that has extended into this Indo-Pacific uh, region where US is a major player. But having said that, Russia has also taken uh, steps to increase its presence in this region, right? So uh, Russia specifically, like as you must be knowing with its focus on this greater Eurasian partnership, it does encompass many of the territories which are a part of the Indo-Pacific region. Moreover, Russia is also trying to sort of diversify its relations with the East Asian countries to avoid excessive dependence on China. So in, uh, through these uh, subtle moves, I think Russia is embracing the Indo-Pacific construct while increasing its presence in the region. One interesting thing is that Russia has held that um, the Indo-Pacific concept is undermining ASEAN centrality. However, the ASEAN's release of its Indo-Pacific vision in Outlook uh, in 2019, of course, undermines this Russian narrative. After which I do notice some subtle changes where it's not so much talking about Indo-Pacific, but now it has focused its attention more on what. Um, having said that, of course, um, situating India and Russia relations uh, in the Indo-Pacific, like of course, India and, India and Russia share historic and I still think that Russia is an invaluable partner to India. And uh, for India specifically, I think Russia's inclusion in the Indo-Pacific does have benefits because it would strengthen India's own narrative about Indo-Pacific being a very inclusive region. And this narrative, I think, is very, very uh, typical or very uh, unique to India because I think India is the one country which really emphasizes inclusivity compared to the other countries. That is, of course, my understanding of it. So I do see Russia's incorporation into the Indo-Pacific being a very uh, uh, being a good thing for India. And there have been a few reports in the Indian media also, where India has actively reached out to Russia to be a part of it. And this brings me to the Raivina dialogue, which took place where uh, I think the Russian, uh, like I, I can't quite remember his designation, but he did deliver an address there and he spoke about the Indo-Pacific and the gist of that was that Russia understands India's idea of Indo-Pacific, it accepts India's uh, uh, concept of Indo-Pacific, but it, will, it still criticizes Quad uh, on the grounds that it is de detrimental to inclusive dialogue. Having said that, Russian and Indian navies have uh, in recent times even stepped up their cooperation in this region. They did conduct two exercises in the Eastern Indian region or Indian Ocean region uh, in 2020. And there are also reports which suggest that they are planning to sign a mutual logistics pact. Having said that, of course, there are challenges for India also to include Russia, which is obviously very different from Washington. Um, there's already sort of tensions uh, in uh, India and US relationship with uh, India's arms procurement from Russia. So this will, of course, be a challenge. And Indo-Pacific is the one theater where India-US relations are growing. 
So whether this will be a thorn or not, it I think depends very uh, largely upon how tactfully India handles the situation. How will Indian diplomacy incorporate United States and Russia balance between the two while keeping in mind the China factor is something which is very, very interesting. Um, and it will be it will be interesting to see how they evolve. And in this context, only I'll also like to point out that actually the three countries of Japan, Russia, and Indo-Pacific, the think tanks from the think tanks from these three countries did hold a track to dialogue recently, where they are exploring the areas of cooperation uh, in economic, social, regional issues. Uh, and also exploring how they can harness economic opportunities to sort of develop Russia's far eastern region uh, for mutual benefit. But Russia at the same time did express reservations in recognizing this trilateral arrangement to be a part of Indo-Pacific. So you can understand how complex uh, the dynamics are, right? So this is Russia, India, US, China. The recipe for uh, really like, um, I mean, I wouldn't say disaster, but it is something which can either, you know, sort of produce really, really interesting results, irrespective from an IR student's perspective. It's good that you mentioned the US as well, because obviously this is a relationship that is India's position in regards to Russia will have be heavily influenced, of course, by its relationship to the USA which is another way of saying these relationships do not exist in a void. They are all influenced by each other. But let's turn now to the US because we've spoken a little bit about India's relationship with Russia in as far as it's uh, in as far as the Indian Pacific region is concerned. But let's turn to the USA. A question that I've wanted to ask you is whether India and the US are perfectly in sync with each other. Because a lot of the assumptions perhaps that are, that are easy to make is the assumption that India and the US will be perfectly married in as far as their vision goes towards the Indo-Pacific and this might not necessarily be the case. I wanted to take this opportunity to ask you this, whether they are uh, perfectly synced with each other or whether it's a case of the smaller power, in this case India, ever finding itself that it is forced to agree with the terms uh, set by the United States, their dominant ally. And specifically, we might look at the Diego Garcia Islands as an example of a situation whereby India is, is sort of forced to accept their status quo, and uh, whether there are more examples of this kind. So let me take your question in parts. The first question concerning whether the vision of the two countries are in sync, the answer is no. Okay. So, um, although let me, uh, that there's a small caveat in that, that I see them, them coming closely in sync with each other with each passing day. Uh, they're coming in sync with each other, but officially, uh, Washington still sort of maintains its de definition of Indo-Pacific region, which was, uh, I think, most clearly articulated in the 2017 uh, National Security Strategy, if I'm not wrong, uh, where it sort of described it as stretching from the west coast of India to the western shores of the United States. The exact phrase. Um, this obviously excludes, you know, the east coast of Africa, it excludes Arabian Sea, excludes Bay of Bengal sort of at large. Whereas Indian vision is much more inclusive, as I mentioned, it incorporates the entire Indian Ocean and incorporates Africa, right? So uh, this is the most obvious divergence uh, that I see. Another thing is in the US strategic thinking, there is this artificial division of the Indian Ocean as well uh, by the US military, right? Which has divided it into an Eastern section and into a Western section. 
where the eastern section falls under the Indo-Pacific Command and the western section comes under the Africa, US Africa Command and the Central Command, right? So this has been a major challenge for bilateral cooperation between the Indian Navy and the US Navy. Because currently, the Indian Navy has close relations with only the US Indo-Pacific Command, right? So this obviously creates operational and logistical problems in coordinating activities in the region. But I think the most important uh, question over divergence is over uh, the recent uh, EEZ uh, problem which sort of arose, um, which could have the potential of becoming a really thorny issue in bilateral relations, but I'm happy that it was resolved quite, it was resolved diplomatically. So the entrance of the US Navy's seventh fleet, uh, John Paul, John Paul Jones, uh, into India's EEZ without prior notification, created an uproar in India's diplomatic community. And I'll tell you why. So although this has happened before, in the past, there have been several times where US holds uh, U.S. position is that it has the freedom of navigation, right? Uh, where, but India's ratification of the UNCLOS was premised on specifically mentioning that uh, it does that uh, other countries will need uh, India's permission to carry out exercises. It was premised on this. So this is an area of contention. But this time, the statements which came out publicly sort of clubbed India with China by specifically mentioning that uh, U.S. has a problem with this specific clause of prior notification. And this is what sort of, you know, created the uproar in India, which was quite insulting to say, because a country where, you know, our partnership has is been under uh, light and, you know, it's getting so much attention. And so, so this was a, a sort of uncalled for thing which could have been resolved bureaucratically. But to club India with China by specifically sort of bringing out this prior notification thing, in the public domain was something which really did affect relations. And in India, I can tell you that uh, in the strategic community, there were many voices which were sort of saying that uh, you can't trust US. And this trust factor, of course, has been a major theme in India-US relations given our rocky history, right? So I think this is uh, very uh, prominent if you're talking about the divergences, right? And uh, another thing is, of course, uh, when it comes to the Western Indian Ocean also, which has to do with the artificial division, which I'd spoken about earlier. How I see it is that currently Western Indian Ocean does not get the priority in cooperation, but this is one region where they really need to cooperate, given Chinese incursions and Chinese activities in this region. Uh, of course, the US uh, uh, um, NDA Act for the year 2020 does incorporate amendments to improve military co coordination in the Western Indian Ocean region, but such a massive geostrategic division, of course, will take time and serious financial resources. But I'm hopeful that uh, the two countries will be able to work together and really focus on the Western Indian Ocean. And uh, yeah, so, but, but yes, coming back to your questions, I do have a problem uh, with uh, your framing, if I'm not wrong, I got it about India being a small power and sort of being coerced uh, by US. I don't see that the India's relationship with US uh, in that light because I feel like India has been very clear that India is not an ally to the United States. It is a strategic partner, right? So we have a long, rich history of non-alignment, which is now which is now sort of been overshadowed by this the by strategic autonomy and strategic partnership. And India is very careful 
about its language when it comes to these terms. Our relationship with United States is one which is very, it's, it's very clear that it's based on mutual interests, where India sees uh, benefits to this partnership, which is why it is uh, sort of, you know, um, you know, coordinating with the United States, but it is not subservient to the United States. It will not follow US dictates, um, you know, just for example, when you had the massive vaccine shortage, there were many voices in India who were very disappointed that US is not coming forward. Of course, there are a lot of technicalities involved as to why the US could not send the vaccine and I'm not going to that. But I'm just telling you the general sentiment in India was that why is United States not coming forward to help us? Because we helped them with the hydrochloroquine drug when they needed it. So things like this sort of do indicate that there is that there's no sort of subservience in this relationship. And I think the fact that you brought up Diego Garcia is the most interesting thing. Uh, and this it highlights this more than uh, anything else, the question of Diego Garcia, US basis on Diego Garcia. India's stance has always been that it is opposed to the militarization of Diego Garcia. And India was amongst the nations which in fact voted in favor of the UNGA resolution, which had demanded that the United Kingdom withdraws uh, the its uh, its administration from the um, from the islands, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where US has a major base. And uh, but of course, it's a non-binding resolution, so there is space for sort of prolonging the status quo and keeps the space for a negotiated settlement still open. But India did not give in to the US calls for support on uh, on on Diego Garcia question. Which really, I think, is a is testament to how independent India's foreign policy is. So uh, we will not be coerced into something or into a decision which is detrimental to our national security interests. Of course, the intensification of U.S.-China competition is something which will have great impact on India's uh, strategic thinking. And I just like to add this is actually a thing. This is actually my project at uh, the Center for Air Studies where I'm sort of looking at the US-China competition and how it impacts India. And of course, it's ambitious and it's uh, there are many dimensions to it. But un like until now, what my research shows me is that India's independent posture, it will, it will continue maintaining it. And as far as the Indo-Pacific is concerned, it's very unique and complex vision, stressing ASEAN centrality, stretching, uh, stressing multipolarity is just sort of testament to its independent foreign policy, so to say. And that concludes the first part of my interview with Rushali Saha on the subject of India's strategic considerations on the Pacific Ocean, its diplomatic objectives, and its relationships with competing powers. Stay tuned for the second part, where we elaborate more on these topics. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day.